Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I am joined by a guest for this interview, my wife, Nicole Bitter. Nicole just recently completed the Havelina 100 this last weekend, and that race was really, really exciting for a variety of reasons. One being that it was pretty easily the most competitive field that the Havelina 100 has put together on the women's side to date. And on top of that, in my opinion, it was probably the second most competitive female 100-mile field in the United States behind the Western States Endurance Run, which is pretty much every year the most competitive 100-miler on both the men's and women's side from one year to the next in the United States. And oftentimes, it's not even close, which I think... The women's field this year got about as close to Western States level competition as as we've seen uh, for the most part. So there was a lot of anticipation with this one leading into it, a lot of uh, uh, potential outcomes and such a wide variety. And Nicole and I touched on this a little bit in the beginning, so I won't get into too much detail here. Just the types of runners that kind of came in their resumes and how they their strengths and backgrounds kind of differed, but all culminated in what was uh, ultimately a very exciting day. And it lived up to expectations, no doubt. Uh, within that topic, what we're going to talk about a little bit is just Nicole's kind of preparation, kind of what makes maybe her buildups unique given her her career occupation that goes alongside her training and racing, which can oftentimes make preparing for these sort of things a little bit unique. Also, just a little bit of a outline, outline of kind of how the day went for her and like how the day played out. And then ultimately a topic that is both relative to this year's Havelina 100, but also a bigger topic that I think is in need of having more discussion in sports in general, but also within the ultra marathon and running community too, which is how are we going to categorize events going forward? So what made this year's Havelina 100 a bit more unique than prior years is they released a third category uh, for for the race. So the typical male-female category was added to with a non-binary category, which personally I think is probably the future of most, if not all, endurance races is adding more categories to be more inclusive. What makes Havelina a bit more unique than other races that have done this so far within the ultra running community is there's a lot of stakes at the Havelina 100. Uh, at the moment, there's only golden tickets available for the men's and women's field. So how do we address that situation in terms of distributing golden ticket races? Is it something where we add a third category of potential automatic entrances through that category? Or do we continue forward with what ultimately they do at the moment, which is having any athlete who identifies as non-binary also select which category between male and female they want to participate in from a results standpoint when it comes to things like prize money or race entry type things in the future. And there was just some implications at this year's event that we talk about that kind of made that a little bit more front and center than it maybe would have otherwise. And just our thoughts about that topic in general outside of this race. Uh, when you add in other variables uh, like biologically born male, female versus, you know, how we kind of navigate that that type of a topic in, in the sport and hopefully open up communication and respectful dialogue about it going forward so that we can be as inclusive as possible within 
a sport that has an element of competition without necessarily creating uh, disadvantages for, for, for other people at the same time. So those are kind of the three big topics that we hit on for this one. Before we get rolling, I just have a couple quick announcements. On the show's Patreon page at the moment is an interview I did with Brody Sharp. Brody is actually a return guest. This was his third time on the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I love talking to Brody about all things kind of injury and rehabilitation based. So for that episode, we focused on three topics that were from his most recent book. And those included detecting and managing early signs of injury, training basics for injury reduction, and third, strength training and cross training and kind of how those feed into injury prevention or don't and just how to maybe use those as a tool in your training toolbox. That episode is up on the show Patreon page. Like I mentioned, some perks that you get by joining the show Patreon page is early release ad-free audio. So you can access episodes as soon as they're done being recorded before they're released to all podcast platforms. You also get the episode minus the intro and minus the advertisements. So if you want to get right to it, that's your spot. You can access the show Patreon page by heading to zackbitter.com forward slash HPO. That URL will also host a variety of other things related to the show, including links and details to prior episodes, uh, also non-Patreon related support options for the show, and basically everything related to, uh, the, ep- to, the, to the podcast can be found through that landing zone. If uh, you want to help support the show non-monetarily, one thing that goes a very long ways is if you like and subscribe to the episodes that you enjoy or the podcast in general on your favorite listening platform and then sharing it on social media or with friends and family so that if you find an episode that you really find valuable, it gets spread out to other folks who are interested in the topics that are being shared as well. If you want to see different options for the show sponsors there is a landing page that holds the details the links and the discount codes for all of the show sponsors including today's episode that is just at zackbetter.com forward slash hpo sponsors today's episode sponsors include lmnt's electrolyte powder and athletic greens multivitamin powder ag1 Athletic Greens flagship product AG1 is a supplement that contains 75 high quality vitamin, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens that will help start your day right. I like to take one scoop of AG1 first thing in the morning. Usually I'll mix it with about eight ounces of cold water and have that right before my first cup of coffee. I like to take it on an empty stomach because per Athletic Greens, that's the best way to absorb all of those 75 high quality vitamins and minerals the best. So usually I'm heading out for a run after I've been awake for about an hour or so in the morning and I like to have an empty stomach anyway. So that fits nicely there along with my cup of coffee first things first. AG1 is lifestyle friendly and fits into a keto, paleo, low carb, dairy free or gluten free and even vegan diet. It has only one gram of sugar, no GMOs and is free of artificial ingredients. AG1 continually updates their product based on the latest science and third party testing. On top of that, they donated over 1.2 million meals to kids in 2020. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. I love these travel packs because they're these little green square packages that lay flat and I can just stuff a few of them in my suitcase. And if I'm out of town for a few days, I know I got that first thing in the morning, 75 high quality vitamin minerals sitting there waiting for me. So if you want to check that out, all you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash HPO to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. You can find links to that in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. This episode sponsor is Element. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, going to the gym, or while traveling. My go-tos are the citrus flavor and the newly restocked watermelon flavor for my long runs and post-run rehydration as well as their chocolate flavor, which I love to add in my morning coffee with a little bit of creamer. Tastes great, and it's a fun way to start the day for me. If you are hesitant or would like to try out Element first, before you purchase, they are offering a flavor sample pack with one of each of their flavors for free to anyone who uses the HPO URL. If you want to check them out and support HPO along the way, you can head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. Links can be found in the show notes as well as at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. I'm super biased on this, but I can say it's my favorite guest to have on the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Nicole, thanks for taking some time out of your busy work day to chat with me a bit. Yeah, happy to be here. I don't do a lot of podcasts. So <laughs> new, I hear a lot, but not on many. Yeah, and we, we sort of have a, some, a couple other guests here that you might hear rumbling around in the background. Those are our dogs, Stella and Minnie, and they are always interested in what we're doing. So when we're sitting together, they're never far away, but hopefully they won't be too big of a distraction for today's episode. Uh, Today's topic, though, is going to be kind of a dive into the Havelina 100 that happened this past weekend. Nicole was one of the participants in that, so we're going to go over a little bit about just how you prepared for Havelina and maybe some uniqueness about your lifestyle that kind of both creates uh, opportunities and hurdles for you within racing and training and things like that, uh, as well as just how the day played out. And then Finally, a third topic that was a little more pronounced at, at Javelina this year than in the past, which is just uh, gender categorization in sports and maybe like what our thoughts are on kind of the current structure of that and what are some potential options going forward with this sort of a topic, which I think is at times a little polarizing and, and people get maybe emotional about it and upset about it at times. So we do want to just out front make sure that uh, everyone listening just kind of knows when we do get into that topic, this isn't something that we are set in stone on in terms of our own personal beliefs, nor do we believe most people should be. So uh, with topics like that, I think communication and a willingness to be able to speak about it without 
fear is uh, is a big step forward and a step forward I hope our community can make in the future as we kind of continue to explore the different opportunities that we have within our sport to be both inclusive and fit. I'm sorry, inclusive and fair at the same time. Um, Nicole, anything else we should add to that before we get rolling here? I think we're set. Awesome. So Javelina is a race that you're familiar with, right? I think I remember in 2020, you preparing and training for that during the kind of the height of the pandemic was an interesting opportunity. What do you remember about preparing for Javelina in 2020? Yeah, so it was definitely a different world at that point. So we were living in Phoenix, which made preparation a bit easier, right? Because we could certainly train on the course itself. So that course specificity, you can't do better than actually running loops at McDowell <laughs> um, to get ready for Javelina. But I think um, it was a unique time where essentially the world kind of stopped. And so um, from a running perspective, I found that probably I had a lot more availability to train than I potentially had in the past. So historically, from a job perspective, I did a lot of traveling. And so fitting in training um, between flying and such and quiet meetings was a bit more challenging. And during the pandemic, it was the unique opportunity where travel was halted. So I really got in some great training before that event. And I think it played out well in 2020. Um, I know we did a lot of speed together, so that was certainly also fun. Um, many, many um, morning runs to to get in that speed, which I think played out phenomenally for Havelina. Yeah, I think it, we sort of drew up a good blueprint for you at the individual level, I think, as to like what gets you prepared physically and mentally for a 100-mile race that's sort of like Havelina, more like a runnable 100 trail like that. And uh, for you, it's a, it's a lot of what I would call kind of reverse uh like a reverse periodized schedule which you maybe see in a typical endurance event where you're doing things that are least specific to race intensity earlier on the plan and then we're getting a little more specific as specific as we get get going the thing that i think maybe stands out about you that's a little different than what i maybe see in the norm coaching people is you tend to really respond to the speed work well you really like it so in your training I think what sometimes taxes you probably more mentally than physically is if we get too crazy with long run stimulus, if we're doing like long runs throughout the entire plan, or we're starting those too mm -hmm. soon, they pile up. And then by the time you get to the starting line, you're kind of a little bit fried on the activity that you're trying to perfect on the day. Uh, so I remember in 2020, we did a, we did a ton of speed work. You were sort of a bit of a late entry into Javelina. So we had just enough time to kind of lay down some, some long run development stuff, but it was, it was enough. And, and you knocked out of the park and won that year. So Coming back was obviously exciting for that very reason. Um, the field was a little different this year, though. Can you, what, what can you tell us about the field going into Javelina in 2022 versus 2020? Yeah, well, wow, it was intimidating. So such phenomenal runners lining up at that start line. Um, uh, certainly awesome performances, but I can't even name how how stacked that field was. Um, and so I think knowing that, I, I knew that I was going to have to run a, a smart race and not get sucked in um, and start out too quickly for, for me because I knew it wouldn't be sustainable. I think there's also that elephant in the room where I also know I turned 40. And I know there's always historically been the case that, you know, um, ultra runners improve as they age. And I, I think to some extent there is um, validity in that. But I would also say that I think it becomes even more critical to really be smart with training and not overdo things. And sometimes 
I know I have a lot of other competing priorities in my life that sometimes interfere with having the most effective training. Um, and just so I know in the back of my mind that there's always that element. So, you know, I just wanted to go out there and give it my all. And I figured, um, you know, at the end of the day, all you can do is your best, right? So I showed up at the line and just wanted to um, make sure to execute to the best of my abilities. And, you know, knowing that at the end of the day, there, there's very, perhaps there would be people that would be faster than me there, which that is the nature of sport, right? I mean, that's what's so cool about sport is knowing that there are, there are excellent individuals out there and you're just trying to do the best you can. Yeah, it's a tough balance between like trying to determine where your level of compete is amongst the field, as well as also knowing when it's a race as long as 100 miles, if you deviate from your own plan that, you know, works too much, which in this case would likely be going out too fast. Yeah. Where's that line at and how close can you get up to it without overreaching and end up running slower than you would have otherwise, and then ultimately falling further back than you would have if you had just run your own race and let some of the, the quicker miles that others were doing early kind of pass by. But um, you definitely had some experience with that from in 2020, the field wasn't as deep, but Camille Heron was there and Camille is uh, obviously quite fast and can oftentimes sustain that fast start. Uh, so you, you had a little bit of experience of just kind of letting the front go <laughs> from that particular yeah. race, but yeah, just like, I think the uniqueness of Havelina this year is it sort of emerged sort of in the course of a single year as being what I would consider probably the second most competitive hundred mile starting list for the women's side of the field in the United States behind Western States, obviously as being the one that has historically been not just the most competitive, but by a fairly large margin. I think Havelina this year, when you look at the talent pool that was in it, it was getting as close as any hundred miler really has to a Western States caliber talent field uh, that, that you could really race in. So, you know, just for some examples, I mean, there was former Western States champions there with uh, um, Casey Lichtai. And uh, there's former Havelina champions with, again, Casey and, and Devin Yanko. Uh, lots of other talent in there as well with um, like Brittany Peterson. I mean, Brittany Peterson hasn't won Western States, but she may as well have. <laughs> she was second yeah. there. I mean, well, her time wins it almost every other year there. Uh, the yeah, list goes on. It goes, I mean, it there, were, yeah. there were so many phenomenal women. And I think that's why um, I was, yeah, I mean, going in, it's intimidating, right? It, that list was striking. I remarked to you that I thought the women's race was even more competitive than the men's on that paper. Um, and I think it played out that way. And when you look at even just how many um, results in the top 10, I, I, I think it's pretty striking how phenomenally the female field was mm -hmm. right yeah and to add to it i had a little bit of excitement too because i think whenever you have a race that goes as deep as javelin into this year you also you have the people that you know have proven on a course like that like mm -hmm. you Devin, casey um Brittany. then you have some newcomers that are have a lot of potential but are maybe a little untested on that type of event and we had that too there was you know annie hughes coming down off the mountains who was one cocodona this year recently won run rabbit run and decided to try a more runnable race which i think is really cool when you see uh, people in the sport really branching out where, where they're willing to kind of like test their limits on from a variety of courses. You had Manuela, um, who is a very high cal, I think like a mid two thirty marathoner. She won, um, uh, what was it? She, what was the ultra that she, uh, she won? Um, Terawera. Uh, yeah, she went, she's won Terawera. So hadn't run a hundred miles yet, but very much had the talent to crush a race like Javelina if, if she had her day. And then Heather Jackson coming over from the triathlon community. She's very well recognized over there, but hadn't done a hundred yet. And 
ended up being the early pace setter for that day. Yeah. I mean, I, the list goes on and Marie matted, Katie Drews. I, I, I think that again, like it goes back to, there were so many talented individuals, um, Riley phenomenal event, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, just put together a stunning performance that the list, it, you know, it, it played out and the, the, the race was really competitive. And I guess at the end of the day, um, in the sport of ultra running, you want to be in a competitive field. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I want to say like, as someone who's paced and crewed you a lot of times, like when I, when we're getting into an event that you're, you're peaking for, there's always a big question in my mind as to like how things will play out. Cause I've seen you execute like you did at Havelina on a number of occasions, obviously previously at Havelina, you've had good days at Western States when I've been able to help you out at black Canyon races where you just were rock solid, consistent all day. But there's also been races where, uh, I think you're ready physically, but you know, life happens, right. And I mean, you have a very demanding day job and it's not a guarantee that that's not going to flare up on you at the most unideal time, like leading into race. I think we saw that at Western States last time you ran it, where, you know, you're kind of in the heat of administration changes and now you're getting clients audited and things at a higher level than you normally would. So you just had this enormous mental stressor on the on your mind, like literally the day of, or not the day of, but the, the day before the event itself leading all the way up to that. And you can't just kind of unlearn that and start racing and expect that mental bandwidth to be there. If you've been, ex- if you've been burning it on other things like the week or weeks leading into it. So I was a little nervous going into Havelina this year because we've just had a lot of change in the last year. I mean, 10 months ago, we moved to Austin from Phoenix, which is a pretty big transition mm-hmm. that comes with moving to a different state. Uh, you know, with that, your routine changed a bit. I mean, some of those were very positive, but they also present hurdles, like a lot of positive things sometimes do, where you've had the opportunity to train with the road running group, which gives you opportunity to do workouts with them on Tuesdays and Thursday mornings. And you're also leading their trail group on Saturday mornings, which has been, I think a really positive element to your, your running, but also comes with the exchange that those are early mornings. So you have a busy work schedule and now you're also getting up sometimes before 5am to do that stuff. You get to the weekend and it's like almost a mandatory, like two hour nap on Saturdays and Sundays in order for you to make it through the week and not feel like you're just running on fumes. So I was a little nervous maybe that with all the changes we've had in the last year, that that would potentially be a a mental stressor or even physical stressor to some degree that would make it hard for you to execute the way you did in 2020, when you had a little bit more flexibility going into the race uh, with work demands kind of downgrading a bit with everyone trying to figure out what to do with the pandemic and canceling travel and all of that. Uh, Was that on the back of your mind? Or are you able just to kind of like, block that out and then go see what happens and then ultimately figure out on the race course, whether that is the reality or not for you. No, I mean, that's always in the back of my mind. It's hard. I I've just made the decision as a human that I want to be very well-rounded. I, I love to run, but I love other things too. I'm very passionate about my job. I want to continue to move up in my career and prioritize that. I mean, at the end of the day, that's always a huge priority for me, right? I, I, I went to law school and I'm very invested in that. And it's, it's meaningful. I care so much about my team at work and making sure that they have the support that they need and supporting clients. I think also, I just feel at this stage in my life that I want to give back more. So it's important to me to be invested in a running group, right? Where, you know, teaching other people to love what I love. So 
you know, there's always, I know I come in with a very full plate and that's challenging. I think it's really challenging for you to sometimes deal with (laughs) because I sometimes it probably piles over onto your plate occasionally. Um, But at the end of the day, I just, I, that's where I find fulfillment, right? Like I, I just, I, I enjoy being challenged and having a lot of um, of being more well-rounded and you, it can go both ways. I mean, at the end of the day, on a, from a race perspective, I, I don't know. I mean, I, oftentimes it doesn't play out, um, in a way that I love it. I know in, um, at Western States in 2021, I, um, the area of law that I support, um, I am an employee benefits attorney and, Um, There was significant legislation that was passed related to um, mental health benefits. And so we created a whole solution to support clients that were being audited in that area. And um, during the course of that summer, we had so many clients under DOL audit. And so trying to make sure to manage responding and supporting clients in that space with balancing Western states obviously, it wasn't a good result. I dropped out. My body just felt fatigued. I went in as I I trained the best of my ability and I did the runs, but I'm sure there was an element of stress on my life that I wasn't able to deal with. And so I think there's always that, that phenomenon that needs to be addressed. I mean, stress from all aspects of life certainly plays into running performance. And so you know, I, I guess I assume at the end of the day, I'm going to sign up and do the best I can, but I always know, I mean, to some extent it's everyone deals with that, right? There's always the possibility for stress, but, um, I probably do understand that sometimes there are swings and misses and I'm okay with that at this point. I think it used to be harder for me, um, to not execute when I knew I was prepared, but I guess the older I get, the more I feel like I look at the whole span of results across 10 years and it just, you know, it all kind of, you look at it cumulatively versus one event. Mm-hmm. I think you always do a good job of, of telling me that. Right? Yeah. You have to zoom out at times like that when you have a bad race and, and especially specifically for you, you've been running for such a long time in general in the sport. When you just look at your resume from three top 10 finishes at Western States, golden ticketing on a number of occasions, including winning the Black Canyon 100K. Like we said, winning Javelina in, in 2020. And at the time was the third fastest time on that course. Uh, this year changed that a little bit, but, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, you're always going to have year to year variances with that sort of stuff anyway, but um, yeah, just no shortage of results that you can be proud of at the end of the day. And I think even though the sport has grown a lot since you got into it to the point where, when you started the opportunity for you or the competitors to even consider like quitting or reducing their normal job in order to focus more on training and racing, that's just a much more pro or prevalent opportunity for people nowadays. So like, uh, you have that, you have that situation though. And I'm not always convinced that that's the best way to go to in, in some cases, because if you do have a bad race in that situation, you sort of come back with nothing but that in a large degree. Yeah. Whereas if you have a bad race, you know, you can come back and sort of oh. look at running through more than one angle and then also invest your time and energy back into your career. Uh, when I get back from tough races, I know the next day I'm going to be on calls and at my <laughs> computer, just going about it at the normal 
day, you know, people aren't going to know what I did over the weekend besides a couple of friends, maybe. So it's business as usual. And I kind of like that because it means like, I'm not uber focused on it. Right. It's just move on. Right. And that's what it takes. It's like, you can't dwell on bad performances. Otherwise it's just, it's going to ruin your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of runners have that. I mean, I certainly have can relate. I've, I've had moments like that, but I, I find that the older I get, the more I like that balance to just move on to the next thing and say, okay, conference call 9am. I'm ready to go better, <laughs> better prepare. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, that's, sort of besides the point for this year's race, because in hindsight, we can look back and, and just reflect on what you ended up doing. And it was about as well executed a race as we could have imagined, given everything we've already talked about. But uh, going into the race, I think like with a course like Javelina, where you're doing five loops, desert heat, totally exposed, you don't get an ounce of shade at all. Other than when you come through the start finish line every 20 miles or so, and you can maybe step under a tent for <laughs> a few minutes and do some co- topical cooling. Uh, you're out there, you're exposed. The first lap's a little cooler, but on a race like that, you know, it's going to get out faster than it should. If you're looking at it from like a even split or a slight positive, slight negative split. So you do kind of have to be comfortable letting people go out of sight, even not just like, okay, I'm behind them, but I can see them up there. So you came around that first loop, which is a little bit longer than the other ones to add like a little two and a half mile section in that first loop just to get it to a hundred. So the other ones that are just over 19 average out, uh, you come through that in, uh, what we believed at the time, I think was around 10th place. How are you feeling after that first loop in the semi cooler weather, uh, having one gotten the long one out of the way, kind of knowing approximately maybe where you were in the field. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what I anticipated. I was, I, I just had that sense that I was probably around 10th and wow. I mean, the field just shot out of the cannon. I mean, I was, I, I wasn't even close to some of the leaders. And at that point, you know, it's always scary, but at the same time, I know what I'm capable of. And I, I wasn't capable of going faster and executing a strong race. So I just, tried to stay in my zone and I, you know, just focused on what I needed to do. So, um, yeah, I, I guess I wasn't super anxious at that point because I had had a similar experience in 2020 where I had been quite a bit behind. Um, and again, I knew the reality was there were a couple of ladies in that, in that field that could knock it out of the park and perhaps were just able to beat me regardless, right. Uh, On my best day. And, you know, so at that point I was really just locked into what I could do. And I was focused on what I felt like was reasonable. Do you find it easier in a race where you look at the field and you're like, okay, I can compete in this field, but there's maybe one or two runners where you kind of in the know in the back of your head, if they knock it out of the park and I knock it out of the park, they probably win. Does that make it easier for you to just kind of run your own racing? Cause you know, like trying to match someone in that position is likely going to end badly for you. Yeah. I'm, I'm very comfortable with that. I mean, I don't in any way that for me, that that's very logical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a pivot, but it popped in my head when you were talking about yeah. the first loop. The second loop, uh, you came around, which gets you to around 42 miles or so, uh, you looked great when you came through and your splits, I actually think your splits were a little too fast. Those first two loops. Um, I wouldn't say so fast that I was nervous about it, especially because you came through that second loop and you looked great. You were optimistic. You were right where I think we wanted you to be. You had moved up from what we thought was around 10th. 
uh, from that first loop to around seventh. So progress, right? We're moving up, you know, moved up a couple think, spots. Yeah, I was running with Casey and Riley, um, I think at that point, and Anne-Marie, I think joined us and the third loop. And uh, yeah, I think it was just, just trying to stay solid and felt good. I didn't feel like I was running on clouds. You know, some days you just have that feeling where you just feel phenomenal and you're just, everything is effortless. I didn't have that feeling. I felt like I was okay, but I just kept hammering like it, you know, at a reasonable rate. I just wanted to keep putting one foot in front of the next and continuing, continuing on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you, you come into loop three, which I like to call the moment of truth at Havelina because loop three is interesting to me because you finish it and you're just over 60 miles in and you've gone through, if you're in the lead pack on either the men's or women's side, essentially, you find yourself in a position where you've done the hottest loop of the day from the temperature standpoint, you've got plenty of fatigue in your legs at that point, because you know, you're well past your longest long run. Uh, you're well into ultra marathon territory at that point, but you're staring down what I call the double barrel of loops four and five, which can be very daunting if you're not feeling good. Course like that, where it's going to be hot and hard to deal with, even on a cooler year for Javelina, you really have the opportunity to come in a little cooked if you went out too fast. And if you're overheating on the top of it, it's just like the level of motivation to wrap your head around the fact you're going around that loop two more mm -hmm. times can be devastating. When you came in on loop three, I was a little worried. You looked like you were, you got in there just in time. What were you thinking at the end of loop three? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's the reality. I think you and Lauren are amazing and got me ready to go, but I, I was feeling it. Um, but I, I think I was maybe a little low on calories. Um, and so it was just one of those moments where I think I ate a lot at that point. And then you, we, you were with me. So I think once we got started, I, I felt like the fourth loop ended up going. Okay. Yeah. I would say so. <laughs> yeah. The, it was kind of funny. Cause you came in, you looked definitely more worn than you did after loop two, which mm -hmm. caught me a little bit off surprise. Cause when you came through loop two, you looked so good. I was like, my mind kind of went to like, historically when you rock solid all day, mm -hmm. like you kind of have the same demeanor all day. And I almost wait for there to be a bit of a fall off and it just doesn't arrive. And then we're at the finish line and it's like, wow, nice race. This time you came through, it looked like you had been overheated a little bit. You said you were a bit behind on calories maybe. So we took a couple of minutes before heading out on that fourth loop, which mm -hmm. is when I can start pacing you. Uh, we got you soaked a lot of cold ice water, which I'm sure you hated at the moment. But as soon as you were done with it and you, your yeah. core temp came down a bit, you probably were thankful for that. Uh, and it was probably the most food I've seen you eat in an aid station since you won Black Canyon, where you came through, I think, mile 28 station and, and left with like a full muffin and cookie or something like <laughs> that. Uh, so it, we filled you up, got you some water and electrolytes, a little bit of caffeine and uh, soaking wet, brought your core temp down a little bit. And it probably took us a couple of miles for all that to kind of set in. But once we got about two miles into that loop, you started clicking. Um we were running with Casey at that time still. And at yeah. once we kind of went through that first aid station, started climbing up to Jackass Junction, which is the midway point of the loop. You were, I was so excited watching your splits going up to Jackass Junction because they were, they were better than they were in 2020 on loop four. You didn't walk a step on that. Um, everything was like your slowest miles were still in the nine minute mile pace range. 
So you made quick work of that climb. And when we got to the top there, we, in terms of watching the leaderboard, I thought the next person you'd probably catch based on where you came through uh, on the third loop was Manuela. And I think she had dropped out somewhere between the start finish and Jackass Junction. So we weren't sure. We didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. What we got up to Jackass Junction, what I didn't expect to hear was that uh, Brittany Peterson was only like two minutes ahead of you. She had just wow. gone over the hill while we went entered that aid station. And she was, I think, about almost 20 minutes up on you at the start. So I didn't anticipate we'd catch her if we did at all until the end of the fourth loop or somewhere in the fifth loop. So it was a bit of a surprise to me. Uh, what were your thoughts there going through that aid station, getting that information, knowing, okay, I have an opportunity to move one step closer to what ultimately in this race is kind of a race for the top two to get a golden ticket for the Western States 100? I mean, I don't know how much thinking I was doing at that point. <laughs> I was just um, trying to put one foot in front of the other. I knew I had to keep fighting, right? So I was getting tired um, for sure. And it's always a good feeling when you feel like you're moving up in the field. Um, you know, it's always hard to pass people too that are struggling and working hard, especially friends that are, you know, um, but I, I was just glad to keep powering through and I just kind of felt like I was going to hang on to you and, uh, just get through the four so we could get to the fifth loop because the faster you run, the sooner you're done. And mm-hmm. that's my motto in life yeah. that I learned in high school cross country. <laughs> it just happens that like, <laughs> slow motion in a hundred mile races is a little different than the 5k. Yeah. Right? But yeah, so we finished the fourth loop. Uh, I think that's where we found out that Manuela was no longer in the race or mm-hmm. certainly not in front of you. So at the time we thought you had moved into third place going into the fifth loop and we knew it was Devin and Heather, Devin Yanko and Heather Jackson ahead of you. Uh, Heather Jackson got out at such a fast pace and being a new hundred miler, my thought was there's no way she maintains. There's no way she maintains. The only question was, does she blow up or does she slow down and hang on for dear life? And word on the word at the, at the headquarters was that there is, there is walking being done. Uh, and you know, when someone's walking in a hundred mile race in areas where they could technically run or had been running, if you're someone still running, like you're making up minutes per mile and can close a rather large gap. So I think the word was that we were 16 minutes out of what we thought was going to be second place at the time. We didn't know yet if it was Devin or, um, Devin or Heather yet though, until like I had an update on my phone and found out it was indeed Devin leading and Heather was the one that was fading a bit. What was your mentality going to that fifth loop, knowing that you were within striking distance of, of, you know, moving up another spot at least? Yeah, no, I mean, that was awesome. I, you were keeping me updated. You were looking at your phone the whole time. I mean, <laughs> I think the whole time we were moving up in the field and you had your phone out tracking. So we had a sense of where we are because it's so critical, right? To know where you are in a field. And so I think I was getting excited. I mean, certainly I was tired, but yeah, I mean, I was just kind of, trying to hang on, <laughs> mm-hmm. keep the pace, right? Keep the pedal on the metal and just, um, just keep, keep moving forward and working through. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I remember like on multiple occasions when I would offer you encouragement or give you an update, you'd be like, I'm trying as hard as I can. <laughs> I was like, well, that's all we can ask really. Right. So, um, we moved a little bit slower this time up to up to jackass junction in the fourth loop 
Uh, I think that's was the case for pretty much every, every one of the women in the field that year. Uh, probably the case for everyone, but maybe Nick Curry, actually, he's, he's maybe the only one who routinely negative splits that last loop. But, um, it was, it was interesting because we, we knew you were gaining on, on what we perceived to be second place at the time we went through Jackass Junction. I think we thought we were maybe, I can't remember. We were told or I checked and we were like four minutes behind. So now we have a nine minute stretch, mostly downhill, your favorite part of the course. We know at that point that, you know, given just running the math, you're 16 minutes back at start finish, four minutes back at, at Jackass Junction, that you were closing in at a rate quicker than a minute per mile. And that would likely put you in a position, if nothing changed, to pass that somewhere between the start of that nine mile, final nine mile section to finish. And, you know, as fate would have it, I think it was around what, six months, five or six miles of the finish line. So around 94, 95 miles in, uh, we saw Heather Jackson moving. Um, she was running, but running about as slow as one could run while still running. And, uh, you were moving quite well, all things considered. And that was the pass you had been looking for. What was the, what was the thought like when, when you finally made that? Well, I was wowed. I mean, she's such a phenomenal athlete, but I just was surprised and I just kind of was like, I can't believe this is happening um, because mm-hmm. I guess we thought I was in second and that just was such a incredible feeling. Yeah. And I mean, given where you started from too, like you're just the level of patience required to say, okay, I moved up a couple spots, that loop, a couple spots, this loop, and just that keeps happening. Yeah. Eventually it gets to a point where you're just like, you almost wear a little thin with that same track of mind. And then when you kind of get in that position where, okay, it just actually happened. Now your brain almost switches from chaser to chased a little bit. Uh, and, and for, for good reason, because the person behind you was Casey and Casey had been, she hit a bit of a rough patch, I think going up to, uh, up to Jackass junction on loop four, which is where you put your bigger gap on her. But knowing that someone of her caliber was behind you and likely potential if she had like a really really strong finish and you faded a bit still within shooting range yeah you got to stay focused you got to stay moving you can't take a whole lot of time to celebrate anything yet at that point there's still five or six miles of of what would need to be running to get to that finish line so how did that feel from just like a going to the well standpoint yeah i just wanted to keep moving and get to that finish line i was just motivated to be done i again i just (laughs) at that point in a race i'm just ready to be finished running yeah. So we, we, we enter the headquarters, um, again, assuming you were in second place, go around the loop finish. And then, uh, we kind of got some information of, uh, you know, kind of how the day actually played out outside of the, the leaderboard and the reporting. Um, you want to tell us about what kind of happened at the finish line? Yeah, well, I, we finished and I mean, that was exciting. So, um, you know, we crossed the finish line. I think we saw Devin first and she said, congratulations. And then, um, you know, I think Julie told us that um, I, 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 at that point, I still thought I got second place. Um, I think then we were told um, that it was third. Riley had gotten second and she came up and was, um, and Riley was so kind, came over, um, said great job. And so it was just, um, yeah, I was, I was surprised. I probably was at that point a bit brain dead regardless. So, yeah. you know, after you finish your race, it's, you're always, I mean, I'm always exhausted. So yeah, I, not exactly the way I expected things to play out. Um, 
but at the same time, um, you know, that's, it's a hard, yeah. hard message yeah. to get, no matter what the yeah. circumstances are. It's not like, you know, your brain yeah. went to one area and it was told when you finished, it should have been in another. And that's, that's hard to digest. So, um, I mean, this is where we transition to that, that third topic we want to talk about today. And like, before we get into it, uh, I think some background information on kind of like what was different about Havelina this year than maybe in prior years and in a lot of events, to be fair, this is a transition that the sport has been making now for a bit. So we're seeing this happen more. And uh, before we get into it, though, like, I mean, this is a type of topic where I think a lot of times people's impulse is who's the victim, who's the person who did something wrong or made a mistake. And I don't want to frame this conversation like that, because I don't think this was something where it was any one person or any one group's fault necessarily. But it's more of, a, I think, an opening of a door for us as a community to maybe reflect on how we how we implement changes that we find uh, find as a whole to be beneficial for the sport without creating situations where there's uh, people who are you know finding themselves paying for something that would otherwise be positive. Yeah, I think everyone had good intentions, right? So I think going into it with that mindset is critical. Mm-hmm. And, and, and to be totally clear too, it's like with this topic of like having a non-binary category and like welcoming in uh, transgendered athletes into the sport, uh, Riley specifically, like did everything they were supposed to do from like the registration standpoint, uh, the racing, there was nothing that Riley did that impacted the decision-making that you did or the, the, the fact that the reporting was void of uh, Riley being in the female field, despite being in the female field. So the way for people who aren't aware, it kind of works now, if a race does decide to implement a third category, so we'd have a male category, a female category, and then a non-binary category is if you select male or female, you're on to the next step because you've already been categorized into that field, uh, one of those fields or the other. Now, if you select the non-binary field, you get a, another drop-down box that asks you, are you going to participate in the male field or the female field? And based on which one you select there is where they are going to channel your results for the day. Uh, partly just because at this point, the non-binary field is, is quite small. I have, I think there was three non-binary athletes there, uh, Riley being one of them. And where the confusion, I think, ended up happening was there was no real clarification before during the race that if you select the non-binary field, you're automatically in the results for the female or male field. And then there wasn't really any indication on what that had to do with golden ticket acquisition. So um, because at this point, there's no golden ticket for non-binary. Right. Which I think is like the next level to the question that sort of went unanswered going into this event, despite having this implementation put in place. So, uh, in a perfect world, what would have happened, I think would have been, if you're going to go with that setup where you have, you click non-binary and then select female as your, your, your results list. You're, you will reflect on the leaderboard and the, the, the I guess the scoring, I you call it for the day as being in that field. So your competitors are aware that where you're at and kind of how you're performing. And I, I'm, I'm sure if we asked Riley, she'd probably prefer that or I'm, that they would prefer that um, 
that that would be available information and it wouldn't be just kind of yeah. hidden under the non-binary category, despite having their results being counting towards the, the towards the female field. And, and that's really where I think the majority of the confusion is or was on that particular day. Uh, is that kind of how you understood it too? Yeah. I mean, I think when we take a step back, you just want to know at the end of the day, the day who you're racing. Mm-hmm. And I think there was some commentary that everyone should know who they're racing based on the entrance list. Apologies. I don't have time to track down 700 entrants <laughs> and evaluate that. So I think, you know, knowing that you, there's a clear indication of who is in what race is critical, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when you're at a race as competitive, that's serving as a qualifier for Western states. So I think certainly in the future, there's the opportunity because again, I think we were of the mindset that I was in second place. And so um, we were running using that data. Um, so yes, I, I think that at the bottom line, and I think that's, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of individuals that would dispute that that makes sense. I mean, that seems pretty logical. It seems reasonable for sure. I, I think my biggest, I don't know if I call it a criticism, but my, my request perhaps is like with this sort of thing, I think we're seeing the landscape shift. We have some precedent with some of the bigger, like world marathon majors like Boston, New York, Chicago, I believe all three of them have a non-binary category going forward. These are huge events, right? Like much bigger than any event we have in ultra running. And they also have some precedent with categorization outside of the male, female category. You know, a lot of these races also have like a wheelchair division. They have a, 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 a visually impaired division and things that allow them to kind of have already sort of to some degree, worked through this multi-category approach. Whereas with ultra running, one of the things I see is like, when we want progress and we want to advance into some new frameworks and things like that, step one is deciding we want to do it. Step two is making sure that we actually have a process in place. So races like Javelina have some structure to lean on so they don't feel like they're reinventing the wheel on the fly, like I'm sure you know, Jamil and Arabipa probably felt like was sort of happening this year at Javelina where the pressure's there for them to flip that switch and add that non-binary category. But I'm not sure what level of support Jamil and Arabipa got from the, from, from the, the groups of people that were advocating for that in terms of this is going to be a structure that will avoid a situation like what happened on Saturday. Well, yeah. And I think taking a step back too, when you think about who's driving some of the decision-making, ultimately it's a qualifier for Western states. So there has to be some um, connection with Western states and their protocol in order to have a similar protocol, right? So there, there really does have to be some discussion as to how you're going to handle these types of scenarios. And I, again, I think everyone was trying to do the right thing. So that's what makes this so challenging. And I'm all for equality and, and making the sport more inclusive. I do feel though, I, I do have this important sense of protecting women's sport. So there's that element as well. So I really want to be thoughtful that in an effort to protect women's sport, we are taking a a step back and being critical in terms of how we're structuring all of this, because I think there's a good answer as to how to structure it. But I think in this case, you saw how there wasn't that, that protocol in place and things quickly fell apart. 
Yeah. And I think like the, mis- the mistakes that happened kind of this weekend were, I would say very, very small compared to what could potentially happen with, yeah. with this sort of a shift. And I mean, part of that is because, I mean, we're on the same page. If, if you have a, an athlete who's non-binary and they're a biological female, I have zero issues with them participating in the female field and taking prizes and prize money and awards like Western States, where I think it starts to get a little more murky is if you have a biological female that is potentially on some like on a hormones that would potentially like, you know, increase testosterone or something like that, or take that a step further. You have a, a biological male who transitioned to be female uh, is likely on some sort of testosterone suppressant, but competing in the female field. And that's where I think the real, like where the rubber meets the road with this conversation is what do we do with those type of situations to still welcome in all the, all the, the, the non-binary runners who want to participate in sports. I don't think anyone who's non-binary should ever think I can't be an ultra runner because this community yeah. doesn't want us here. That's the last thing that you or well, I want. And yeah. And most the, people probably and truly like at the end of the day, they're the, as a human being, I think that's so critical, right? Making sure we support other people. I think we can do that though, and still have a place for women's sport. And that's where I think there's an opportunity. And I think there has to be a lot of discussion as to how that's going to be structured, because mm-hmm. I know taking, taking um, a perspective just from a, a legal perspective, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of implications that need to be addressed. And, you know, I know a lot of people are working through that. And I think that's something we need to just keep working through. I just do think it's important to also speak up. And I I was very hesitant to speak up on this issue. I I generally don't even go on podcasts, um, but- Unless your husband makes you, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, But I- Just kidding, invite her on your podcast, she'll come on. But I also know that if we don't protect women's sport, that's going to be a sad day because I have sports to thank for the person I am. I mean, I, I grew up playing sports and I, mm-hmm. I loved that, that privilege. And I think as a young girl, I want to make sure that there's those same opportunities. And I, I think there's the ability to do that, but I do think we need to set clear policies to protect women in sport. Yeah. I mean, I, the way I think we're a lot of times we have problems with this particular topic is what you sort of alluded to. One is people are generally afraid to even bring it up. And that's a problem. Like, because that screams, like there is information being suppressed. And the only reason to really like fight against having that information come up is by silencing people, which I don't think is the way to go. I think we need to be able to have these conversations and be willing to allow people to ask questions and potentially make some mistakes uh, that, they, that they can learn from and, uh, you know, kind of you know, move forward there with um, kind of respect from both sides. And I get this isn't meant to be like, oh, all these, you know, non-binary athletes and, and activists are coming in and, and shouting down all the, the, the others. It's, you know, it happens from both ends. You also see a real bigotry coming from certain individuals where they would just as well, like categorize a, a, a non-binary athlete as a subhuman. And that's obviously terrible and not something that we want the direction to head or the pendulum to swing towards in any capacity. 
where I think it gets confusing for people is since we are very much learning a lot about this in real time, it becomes a difficult conversation about what, it, what do we know? And based on what we know, how do we either make changes or not make changes? Because you do have sort of a competing, a competing, if you want to call it rights, it's sports. It's not, you know, the same as like, like non-privileged type opportunities, I guess is the way to maybe frame it. Uh, but it is, there is, there is potential winners and losers, losers based on kind of how this decision-making gets made. And as we've sort of seen some more interest and money put into research on this category, there is, you know, a bit of a debate at the moment as to whether like, can you have a biological male, you know, go on, uh, testosterone reducing drugs and then normalize the competitive field and allow them to compete as a, in the female category without a, a biological advantage. And, you know, looking at the information we have available now, it's just like, yes, we can suppress testosterone and that likely does close the gap, which in running is going to be somewhere between about 10 to 12%, I believe, between a biological male and a biological female on average. But if you look into it further, it becomes a much more complicated question than just lowering of testosterone. When you look at just the biological advantages of, uh, of someone born biologically male versus born biologically female, we're looking at things like bone length and density. We're lo- they're known as sex- secondary sexual characteristics. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, goes, it goes as far as if you're biologically male, you have a dump of testosterone in the womb. And then again, at six months. So it's like, you're already going to almost by default, get those two advantages right out the gate from a testosterone based standpoint. And you, when you look at even reduction in testosterone in terms of like muscle preservation and strength preservation and things like that, it's not as big of a dip as I think we would like to see. I would like to see is maybe a weird way to say it, but like that we would need to see in order to realistically assume that this gap is being closed to the point where now having a biological male at birth competing within a female category is going to be, you know, fair. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think these are questions for biologists to address. And I think there's a lot of decisions that need to be made broadly, right? I think you stated a lot of the key issues. And this is where I think we need science to help us with some of the decision making. And I think that's critical to have the right people. Um, again, this it's a very, very complex topic that I don't feel comfortable weighing in on a ton, given that I am not a biologist by background. Um, absolutely, though, very challenging and just a lot of complexities. And I think at the end of the day, there's that importance that we all just are respectful of one another. And I, it's just unfortunate that you see a lot of um, disrespect in this space. So I, I think hopefully you know, in the future, things improve, because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we're all humans. And I think that's very important. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a biologist either. But I think like, when I think about it, what I based on what I what I believe we know at the moment. um, And again, I mean, we're, I'm open to information that I'm not privy to. But as far as I can tell, at this point in time, it doesn't seem like we can suppress the biological advantage of a biological male to the degree that would needed to be to level the playing field. Now you can make an argument that leveling the playing field is entirely an elite part of the sport. And really that's the 
only question to be answered here. And, 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 and then you could also make further make the argument that we don't care about that. And therefore we should just let it all kind of happen without any attention paid to it. And if that's your position, like, you know, I'm not going to push back on, on you holding that position. I'm going to maybe disagree that that's, I'm, I'm going to just prioritize that more yeah. than that person. would. Well, I mean, when you think historically of sport, it's who is going to be the champion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so that has historically been the mindset of sport, but coming from an equal playing field. So how do we make the playing field equal? Or are we then creating um, certain advantages? I mean, that's, I guess, at the end of the day, fundamentally the issue that it's more of a philosophical it does question, have a philosophical, right? philosophical question involved. It's that I mean, that's what makes it complex. It's not just one thing. It's not mm -hmm. just the biology. It's also the the you know, yeah, the philosophy and how you couch it too. It's like you know, some people are going to put a huge emphasis on um, you know, on certain aspects versus others, and that that emphasis is going to in is going to weigh on how they ended up coming coming into a decision on like what we should do with this going forward and. I mean, ultimately, what we're going to probably see is there's going to be organizations like the Western States 100, which is a precedent setter for the United States and the ultra runners, ultra running events that kind of are also in, in the, the calendar year. And, you know, what they decide to do is likely going to be the, the, the standard, at least. And then, you know, you'll have some race directors do um, other things and follow suit. And I think like, but that that's likely like the the future look at what's to come is what Western states ends up deciding to do with these sort of things. Yeah, probably. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are athletic greens and element You can find links to those in the show notes and at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Take advantage of athletic greens, free one year supply of vitamin D and five travel packs and element sample pack. I do want to talk a bit about just because there, the, I mean, this question just keeps going, right? Like there's always a follow-up in terms of, well, if you do this, then what about that? If you do this, then what about that? And one that I find kind of like interesting and worth kind of starting a conversation around is what do we do if we do end up deciding a three category male, feel non-binary? And I think at this point in time, that's what I'd like to see. Mm -hmm. I think that's really our best forward option now is a third category but that opens up a question as to what do we do with races like golden ticket races, where historically it's been two tickets for the men, men's field, two tickets for the women's field. If we have this third field, uh, how do we include that, them into the golden ticket conversation? Because it doesn't feel necessarily fair to say, okay, you have your category now, now just show up and have fun and then you know, consider yourself included. If at the end of the day, they look at, yeah, but those other two categories get these other opportunities that we don't get, that doesn't feel necessarily fair either. Mm -hmm. But then when you look at it, it sort of becomes a bit of a numbers game too, where you have, uh, you know, you have like a lot, you, I mean, let's, let's look at the Havelina. There was three non-binary runners registered in that field versus, um, I don't even know how big, I think the field was like 700, I think 700, 700, which was probably more male than female, I would imagine. But okay. still we're talking about hundreds on both sides and to, to go like a two, two, two is, um, probably more than what we would see in the short term with that. So I was trying to think of like, well, what would be a option to include like a non-binary category in a golden ticket or even some sort of like, I mean, another step to this, that would maybe not be fixed by what, what my potential, like 
solution would be is like, what do you do with racist prize money and things like that, which is maybe a little bit of an easier one. Cause I think prize money is a little less finite than the golden tickets. Cause the golden tickets is only so many of them. Whereas money, obviously every race has a budget and there's only so much they're probably going to bring in, but there are, there's potential to generate more if the sport keeps growing. And then eventually I think the prize money question isn't as big of an issue because you adding prize money for a non-binary category won't be a big hurdle. Like it may be at some smaller races are today. Um, but my thought was just like, you know, when we used to have the ultra trail world tour kind of system in place, Western States would offer up, uh, I don't know how many it was like maybe 10 or something like entrances into Western States that they would pick based on race resume over like a year or so's time frame. So they would go down, they'd look at like all the potential runners that they could, they could offer a golden ticket to, I guess it probably wasn't called a golden ticket for that. It was just an entrance and a sponsor spot. Maybe is a better way to say it. And they would base it off of their body work. So if you ran a really good race a few times a year and they thought, Hey, this person could really do well at Western States, probably a top 10 candidate, but doesn't have an entrance because they didn't get a golden ticket. They didn't get into the lottery. We're going to offer them one of ours. Now they can race and we bolster up that field. It's more competitive. I wonder if there's not a way to do something like that, where you take a couple entrances to the Western States 100 every year, and then all of the ultra runners that count that, that enter in the non-binary category, enter this selection pool where you have, uh, you have a group of people look at their races and their the race results over the last few years. It's like, which one of these individuals are most deserving to get that entrance into the Western States 100. And that maybe fixes kind of the number disparity thing a little bit. And it also corrects for the reality that we're probably going to see a lot of situations like Javelina, where across the entire race spectrum, we'll have a a, a much larger number of non-binary athletes versus like the three that we saw show up at Javelina this year, or whatever that number ends up being at other races similar to Javelina. Yeah. I mean, that sounds like an interesting solution, but it's very, I think it would be important to hear other people's perspective. Oh, I for just, sure. There's definitely holes mm-hmm. in it. I just, I just don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just personally don't feel <laughs> equipped to add enough value in this. And I, I, but I, you know, those are the kinds of discussions probably that need to have be had. Um, yeah. And I think the, at the end of the day, the, the final note here, I guess, is to say is like, this is a, is and should and will be an ongoing conversation and whether you're basing it off of our conversation here or the the, the many other ones that are probably currently ongoing or have been ongoing it, it's about kind of continuing this and ironing these things out so like when i propose a situation like that or a, a potential solution like that i fully expect that there's that there's problems with it that need to be addressed but ultimately this kind of goes back to what i think I was talking about before where when we implement these changes, we need, I think we maybe just need to think a little bit more about like whose responsibility or how as a community, do we share the responsibility to come up with a structure within that framework that is going to minimize potential mistakes to the highest degree so that we, you know, don't have like people that get like that, that end up paying, paying the price, so to speak along the way. And, uh, that's only going to happen with, with more dialogue around it and, and less blaming and more teamwork is maybe the way to, yeah, I think so. to, to end that, that particular conversation. It's a tough conversation. Mm-hmm. I think so. Well, uh, obviously like, I think we're coming up on time where we have to sign off on this episode, but like we said in the beginning, um, 
whether you have questions or suggestions or criticism about Nicole's training and lifestyle or her race performances, or most likely this third category that we talk about with, uh, you know, uh, categorizing genders in, in sports or in ultra running specifically, feel free to reach out, share yourself. I want to hear things that you think I'm missing or that the greater community is missing and, uh, we can kind of move forward and hopefully find find solutions and find a way to be both inclusive and as fair as possible to to all participants. Nicole, what else do we have? Anything? I think that's all. Um, I do want to give you an opportunity to share where people can find you. I know you said you're not like a huge fan of like excessive social media usage, but you do have some social media channels. You want to share those with us? Yeah, it's NK Bitter. Um, and you oftentimes do a lot of the hard work on my, well, I guilt you into doing like really like cheesy parodies and things like that on Instagram reels, but it, you know, <laughs> you've been very willing so far, but yeah, definitely follow Nicole on Instagram and, uh, yeah, also give her a nudge to, uh, start a monthly podcast herself. I've been trying to talk her into doing a one show per month on this podcast platform with, you know, whatever topic she wants. So Give her uh, some motivation to pull the trigger on that if you can. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much, Nicole, for coming on. Thanks. Hey, folks. Thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 